and joining us from Capitol Hill, or at least so it seems on a beautiful, partially cloudy day, the great James Carey, everyone. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Rob. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I am very excited to catch up with you, dude. I have not talked to you in a very long minute. Yeah, yeah, me too. I was glad to get the opportunity. Yeah, it's fun, dude, to catch up when it's been a minute. Uh, always try to give context. You are not a stranger to me, young man. You are not at all. Uh, we were at school around the same time. Um, we're a little bit farther apart in age just because I was at school later. But uh, mm-hmm. how old are you right now? 30? 31. 31. There you go. Um, so your class of 2015, stage management, correct. design and production. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, all correct. Wonderful. How much stage managing are you doing right now there, kiddo? Uh, none. Well, not <laughs> not by title, at least. Right, um, right. Of course. You know, a lot of my journey since leaving UNCSA uh, has been about, you know, the universal skills that that are taught yes. there to to artists. Uh, I did stage manage for quite a while. I stage managed probably up till 2018 um, and then moved away from the theater industry into events and, you know, corporate events, industrial events, things like that. Uh, and then when I settled in DC into the government, uh, world, which was very much needing creativity in, in an artistic type. Right. So let's back up then and we'll get to yeah. that. Cause I love that we kind of are starting with that bookend. So let's start with where are you from James Carey? Sure. So I'm originally from Seattle. Uh, grew up on the, on the West coast, uh, up until I finished high school. I was a theater kid in high school. Uh, was always interested in it. Googled, found this little place in North Carolina that I had no idea of, uh, called UNCSA. They were apparently from what I did the research on the best school for stage management, which is what I knew I wanted to do at the time. Uh, so without ever seeing the campus or anything, I interviewed, uh, the, the instructors at the time took me on a uh, zoom calls or Skype calls to do the interviews. And before I knew it that August, I was moving into campus without ever having seen it. I drove four days across the country with my father, uh, and moved in, you know, August of 2011. And, you know, uh, that's how I became an East coaster. I've been on the East coast ever since. Wow. Yeah. That's, I guess that's true. So I was going to ask a follow-up to that about, you said born and raised, same town, same house. Yeah. Like, uh, no, not the same house. We moved around uh, about four different houses, but all within the same sort of town around Tacoma, the greater Tacoma area in, uh, Why do in Washington. That? Why move? Uh, you know, those would be great questions for my parents at the time. <laughs> I, I, I think various reasons, probably right. some school district. Uh, mm. my, at one point my grandmother was living with us. She passed. We didn't need that big of a house. So just downsizing, just changing dynamics, normal yeah. family stuff, nothing like yeah. crazy or weird. Like as far as like, uh, parents work or anything like that. No, no. My parents were always doing construction. My dad was a vet, but by the time I have any memory, he was not in service anymore. So wasn't mm. a military family, uh, you know, just change of scenery, mostly I think school districts to get me to a better school district. Were you doing well in school academically? I mean, I was a fine student. I, you know, I never really excelled at it. I was never the the type A person to want to get a 4.0. I did what I found interesting, which was mostly theater at the time and, and English. I was all right at math. I was all, I was terrible at history and geography, still am. Uh, but you know, I was a fine student. I was average. What were your other like things you were into 
when you were young that you think maybe if if things had kind of worked out differently, maybe you would have gone down that path as far as like what you're passionate about. Were there other things? Like I started playing the drums when I was like 11, but right. I never lived in a place where I could have a drum kit. So I never got to practice as much as I wanted to. And that kind of fell by the wayside. I still play, but I never, never started down the road of professional musician just because I kind of couldn't. Did you have anything like that? Like other shit you were into? Yeah, you know, I I mean, we all, I think we all did band. I played trumpet for a while. I was terrible at trumpet. I played all different kinds of sports. I played uh, the trombone for a year. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I got uh, you. I was, you know, I played all different kinds of sports except for basketball. We did indoor mm. soccer because in Washington it rains all the time. Football was a big one. I even did fencing for a bit. Fencing was a lot of fun. How'd um, you get into that? Was that like at school? Yeah. No, it wasn't at school. It was just like a community based. Like I, I don't know. I saw it on a TV show or a movie and I was like, Hey, I want to do of that. Of course. I saw it on TV shows and movies all the time. I was like, it's the coolest shit ever. I didn't have any right. idea how to get started on it. Was it like a community center or like a. Yeah. Yeah. It was a community cool, center. Man. We had a, a small group, you know, that, that met, you know, that had classes. I think every weekend you could go in, get started as with any sport hobby, you know, you got to buy all the equipment and everything. Right. But it was a ton of fun. Um, I even found a small community in Winston-Salem to do it while while I was at college. Well, you but, stuck you know, with it. Yeah, for a, a year, I think, just the first right. year. And then I got too busy for it. But um, that never would have been anything like long-term. That was all hobbies. Right. Video games was probably uh, the other one that I was always interested in. If I hadn't found theater, I probably would have gone to like to Japan in Seattle to to develop video games or something like that. What's your genre? What do you mess with in video games? Are you like an RPG uh, guy? You seem like a like maybe uh, an I, RPG kind of maybe a sports maybe racing. Uh, not racing. That's that's an interesting uh, read. But no RPG. That was spot on. Uh, card collecting. You know, I never got mm. into Magic the Gathering, but all the other card collecting uh, stuff like that, I was always into. Absolutely. So, what do you think? What do you think kept you from like heading down that kind of, let's call it the nerd path. And I say with all due <laughs> respect uh, as one no. myself, what, so what kept you down the dork path of theater and not the nerd path of video games? That's a great distinction. Um, Thank you. It, you know, there is this one moment that I, I know of in my childhood that, that swayed me. So going into high school, the high school theater teacher, Julie Halpin, who has uh, since passed, uh, God rest her. Uh, she was retiring at the time. And so the the it was the class right ahead of me. Uh, the AV department made a tribute video because there was a lot of crossover between AV and theater. Um, That's pretty so cool, man. The, There's not enough of that in most theater programs. There's not. There's not. And to even that our school had an AV program and a theater program uh, at the time, this was 2005, six, right. seven around that area, was still uh, a rarity um, and even more rare now. But the theater director was retiring. Some of the guys who were in the stage crew and the actors who were also in the AV club made a tribute video to her. Um, sort of like a music video dedicated to her of the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that music video as a tribute, uh, specifically all the shots of them in rehearsals and backstage and doing the show um, and seeing that camaraderie, that community and everything behind it really inspired me. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. The just everybody who gets to be a part of it gets to do it and have that camaraderie, that group aspect really brought me into it and continued all the way through to today, really. Do you ever have a pull towards performing? 
No, not not myself. Uh, I right. did puppetry for a while when I was a kid. Actually, I went to uh, I attended church when I was a kid, like with my family. Um, I was bored all the time being in regular sermons and we had a youth ministry or a children's ministry that yeah. was focused around puppetry. Uh, and they were looking for people around my age, like preteen, early teenage to be puppeteers and tell Bible stories. So I got really into puppetry for a bit, um, which was also a popular skill at, at UNCSA. Yes, it um, is. So I've performed like that, but I was still very much behind the scenes. I was never myself right. uh, out outside of performing. So between that and the trumpet, that's the closest I ever got to performing. I have to ask, man, because this is a question I ask to all stage managers, whether they're on this show or not. Um, why the hell would you want to do that? Like for real, like stage sure. management is like, and I don't know if, you know, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast are probably pretty inside and aware of, of the dynamics, but maybe you're a film person or, or something like, you know, a little bit more departed from theater and you don't realize the context of what a theater stage manager is. And if I can give anybody uh, another touchstone, it's very much like the first AD role on a film set. Um, it is one of the most emotionally, mentally, physically taxing jobs in the performance business in the mm -hmm. entertainment industry. And it is also, I would argue, one of the most thankless jobs in the industry in that yeah. the people who are really, really built into the stuff, producers, directors may recognize your talent and be like, oh my God, we got to get them because they're the best stage manager. But not a lot of people are walking out of the theater being like, man, James really managed the shit out of this show. That was my favorite part of the musical tonight. It, so my question is like, what pushes you at a young age to to do all that work for so little recognition and and period? Um, a little bit of indecisiveness, a little bit of uh, wanting to do it all. So, you know, mm. even though we had a high school to the theater department, uh, a lot of people were trying out to be in the shows. They wanted to sing. They wanted to dance. There was a small subsection of people who were like, yeah, I want to be in stagecraft. Uh, I want to do the technical aspects of it. Um, and I was one of them, of course. But I couldn't, I could never decide what I wanted to do. I was in the mm. shop a little bit, building the scenery. I was out hanging the lights. I was doing some sound. I was at that time not sewing or anything, but helping put together costumes and props and all that. And I never quite settled on one specific department. I was definitely a jack of all trades. Uh, and so when figuring out making that move from high school into college and, and from their career, I figured out being a stage manager let me do a little right. bit of all of those things. I wasn't ever in charge of it, but I knew how to speak the language. Um, and that included also performing because I had some performance aspect of, you know, a, a being a puppeteer or knowing what that performance is, but mainly wanting to be part of everything, wanting to be part of the creative vision, wanting to be part of that actor's process, even though I didn't have that talent or that desire. Um, mm. But a little bit of, of being that jack of all trades, but also wanting to enable those performances to happen. Um, I found I always had a mind for puzzles and the puzzles that come through logistics and uh, following what things need to happen in production in what order and how they it can all happen safely to enable the best performance on stage, the best product uh, of a production, really. 
I would love to get into this deeper. That's a great fucking answer. First of all, it makes so much sense to me. And second, I want to get to something that I talked to a lot of people about on this show. And more recently, I think maybe one of the best episodes to recall, uh, Sierra Payton, uh, drama alum. I recently spoke to about building her organization, uh, Michael's daughter, uh, and, you just expressed a role that must exist in almost every single organization in probably multiple people. But what you're talking about is the person who says, I am not the king. I am not the captain. I am not the lead actor. I am not the guy on the poster, but I'm going to bust my ass to support the thing that has that person's name on it, face on it, whatever. Everyone else is going to walk out and go, Oh my God, Brad Pitt. But we all know, at least I know, that he can't do it without the thing I had to do. There are there are not a lot of systems in place in this world, whether it is in the government, whether it is in the corporate world, whether it is in entertainment, to find those people, man. They are the mm-hmm. most important people, I think, because everybody wants to kind of so, – so many – I'm going to restart that sentence. So many people want to be the captain. They're not ready to be the captain. So many people want to be the captain, but they just can't be two captains. There's right. so many things, and there's not enough first mates in the world. There aren't enough good stage managers, first ADs, these people who are willing to do what I just laid out and what you just so eloquently uh, described why someone would be motivated to do it. What are your thoughts as someone who has clearly found out very young that that's kind of your role in these different places is to be there in support of these other things, even if it's at a very high level, if it's at number two, but there is that aversion to like, I don't need to steer the boat. I'm happy to be there in service of this bigger thing. Where do you think that comes from in yourself? And then also how do you see those dynamics playing out as you've transitioned from the entertainment world and you've gone more into the government side of things like that, that dynamic of people kind of fighting to figure out leadership and stuff like that? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, as to where it comes from, I really I don't know where it comes from 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 inside. It is a point of self-discovery when when you say, OK, I. I don't need the the fame. I don't need to be, you know, name in lights. I just want to be part of it. Um, and you sound like a I, good Christian boy, honestly, because that's kind of, no, it's the, those are the values. It, it, it was. And that was very much uh, a part of me growing up was, you know, right. more organized religion. I've since, you know, departed from the organization. Organized sure, me too. But it. I feel the, you know what I mean? Like that yeah. essence of like, we're in service of something. It's very big if you're taking those lessons the right way. Yeah, it, it definitely is. But I, I do also think it's part of a perception problem. Those on the outside of the, you know, the entertainment industry see that hierarchy of being like, oh, there's the star and then there's the director. There's these names on top of the poster. They don't see all of the, uh, you know, countless names that go behind it, especially if uh, I'm using a movie analogy here, if they're leaving the theater by the time some of those names are shown. Um, Marvel got us to watch him, even if we're not reading it. At least we're sitting there. (laughs) I did. I always did because of my friends in film school and looking for names. But but Marvel gave me a reward for it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. They paid you back. Um, But on the inside of the industry, we know that none of it can happen without 
all the names behind it. We know that there is no hierarchy to it. It's all a team project. Um, and that's that's always wanted to uh, what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of it. But I knew looking at myself that especially in high school, I was not confident enough and I had none of the skills to be on the stage. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. I was always more comfortable behind the scenes. I knew uh, that I had a knack for putting the logistics together, for keeping things organized and for making it happen. Uh, and I, you know, I got to be a part of it still. I still got to be part of that group. And I really uh, enjoyed doing that. And you're right, that has stayed with me throughout all of my career. You know, since I left the theater industry, moved into corporate events, I was doing, um, you know, big big things with with big companies. I worked with Apple uh, at Apple Park in San Jose. Another big thing, product launches where, uh, of course, Tim Cook is the one standing on stage. Apple, the product is the one in the headlight. But there are so many things, so many people behind the scenes that make it happen that, you know, we're just happy to be part of it. We're happy to be there and making it happen. Um, Do you find that's then, the vibe in most of those situations that everyone's happy to be in service of it? They don't want to be Tim Cook? Everyone that I worked with, I can't say I worked with everyone uh, up the chain, but you know, everyone finds their place. They're happy to be uh, doing what they're doing, and it's all in mm -hmm. service of of the product, of the project, whatever that is. Um, right. You know, and that's that's when I took stage management and turned it into project management because even though we're used to an audience and a stage and a performance, those aspects can be interchanged throughout any industry to be just for a project. Um, but yeah, as I got into the events world, industrial events, corporate events, people know their hierarchy and people know in that setting, there is a CEO, there is a president, there is someone of that company who is going to be the figurehead. Uh, and, you know, you do your job, you get it done, and you're part of the team that made it happen. Does it seem like any, again, in those settings, like there's a lot of people who are hungry for uh climbing that ladder or more like they've more people seem to be a, have found their spot on the ladder and are like i'm gonna be the best at this yeah there's there's always those personalities you know there's always the people that are that are climbing the corporate ladder they're fighting for they're fighting for their own recognition uh even if they can't be you know the person at the top of the food chain they want to be as best as they can and they get there there are others like myself like most of the people that I work with who know their niche, they know what they are good at. And uh, sometimes that is in support of everyone else and, and being part of it. So, yeah, it really depends on the personality type. And that comes from a lot of internal reflection and self-discovery and, you know, part of what what you do in college and in high school and just through education and through experience. Well, and hopefully you're honest with yourself, right? I think that's the thing that I find people don't always spend enough time being honest with themselves about what they don't know. For example, yeah. like I got hired for a job once because they asked me what my dream job in TV was. And I told them, well, when I was 15, I wanted to be a showrunner because I thought that sounded cool. But to this day, I'm like, I don't fucking know what that means. Like, right. I wish I knew what it meant and, and I could answer you, but I was like, I don't know what my dream job is because I haven't had enough jobs in television to tell you which one I like the best. And I think it's naive of me to tell you I'd love to have a job that I've never even watched anyone do. And I yeah. think that's a thing that a lot of people miss out on is they want their boss's job so bad, but they haven't, they haven't always spent a lot of time being like, do you want to do that job or do you want the title and the pay?
Like, which yeah. is the thing? I've never liked when people ask about a five or a 10 year plan. Me either. Uh, especially when it comes to a career. And I, I, when I do still interview today, I always answer it the same. I'm like, I don't, I don't have a plan. I don't know where I want to be in five years. Because if you had asked me five, 10 years ago where I want to be, it wouldn't have been where I am now. But I have no regrets being where I'm at. You know, I never would have thought uh, even attending UNCSA as a stage right. manager, I never would have thought be working at the Pentagon, working for the Department of Defense or at the State Department would ever be an option for me. But right. I got here and I, I love it. I have no regrets. So talk me through that transition a little bit. You said when you got out of school, you were stage managing at first. What were you working mm -hmm. on? Yeah. So I was working with a touring company called Drake Entertainment. Okay. They don't exist anymore by that name, at least. I think they've been acquired or folded into someone else. But so I was working as a stage manager, as an assistant company manager, uh, touring around the country, did that for a year and a half or so. Um, uh, I was supposed to go on a, on a long Asian tour, uh, the year nice. after that, of course, as those things happened, it all fell through. So I ended up taking a job as a sort of associate general manager, learning the, the business side of show business in their okay. main offices here in, uh, Rockville, Maryland, or sorry, Gaithersburg at the time. So I was in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Um, I started to put down roots in my personal life, starting to have you know, uh, an area that I had called home again, which was a new thing since I had left North Carolina. Uh, and when the time came back to go back out on tour, I just decided, you know, I, I don't want that life anymore. I had fun. I traveled while I was young. Uh, I'm going to see what else there is for me here. Uh, while it turned you out were that, young, you're 31. I know I, I was younger. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, I say all of that. The thing that I'm avoiding saying was I started a relationship, mm. uh, uh, so I, I chose something that at the time was a big choice for me because I had had it drilled in my mind so much that work is life. Right. Uh, I, I chose in that moment to have a personal life and have a relationship where I'm not traveling all the time rather than uh, putting work first. So what that was, that was a choice big... like for you, if you don't mind me asking, as far as like the conversations you had and and like what, what went into you making that decision? That is, I think something we often face, uh, as oh, artists yeah. all the time, which is like, we're kind of taught, like, don't give it up for the girl. Don't give it up for the boy. Don't do the, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of like almost a faux pas. And it sounds like that's the choice you made and you're incredibly happy with it. So like what went into that? Um, you know, now in hindsight, it seems like it was such an easy choice, but I right. know that we, 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 especially I, but both of us labored over it so much because of course, you know, my now wife, uh, didn't want to ask me to give that up because she knew that's what I love doing. But at the same time, we had formed such Good a life. connection, um, that, you know, that was also hard to give up. So we, we thought about it. I had traveled out to a couple shows just temporarily. Um, there was one point where, you know, we both thought I was going to stay out there, but you know, it ultimately was a leap of faith. It was a leap of just saying, okay, this is something, this relationship is something that I really believe in. And there are always going to be other jobs, um, but there's not going to be another her. How much did you uh, end at up least, missing I don't know it if that... soon thereafter once you'd made that call and it was kind of clear that that ship had sailed? Did you feel any kind of remorse or like double, double checking yourself there? Um, I did. I did for a bit. The, I, I always sort of had my bases covered at the time and 
you know, at the at that point, I was still working for Troika and I had mm. just, you know, I had said no to that first opportunity that showed up. But there was always going to be another show. There's always going to be another season that it could happen. Um, ultimately, uh, I eventually parted ways with Troika. They, you know, the office life didn't really work out for me. I did miss being backstage. I miss being part of the action um, where it was happening rather than the administrative business part of it. And totally. that's when that's when I had to make another big decision, which was moving out of the theater industry, which at UNCSA, I was always part of the mind of like, we're here to do theater. We should be doing theater. Uh, you know, I, I had a bit of a, a stigma about people leaving the theater industry. And so that was another big choice was for me to move to corporate events. But living in D.C., living in at least the DMV area, um, theater didn't pay the bills. I was still struggling and I was getting tired of struggling. Uh, and so I started moving more into corporate events and found a great company, Viva Creative, that still exists in Rockville. And the the president of events at that time was a Disney guy. He had grown up in Florida, worked for Disney, worked for Universal, now uh, was working for this company in Maryland. And he knew the value of theater people and the skills that theater people offered. So he hired a lot of theater folks to do events. And so that's how I made that transition there. It was still very much an audience and putting on a performance, but instead of you know singing and dancing, it was selling a product, it was marketing, it was um, whatever the client needed at that time. So I got to be part of the action again, but still have a home base. And I traveled on occasion. Was there still contact between you and like your peers from school? Or you get any like, ah, you bailed, like, you, like your biggest fear of, of quitting the stigma? Did that hit you at all or did no one give a shit? No, nobody, nobody gave a shit. Right. Uh, and you know, that, that stigma was all internal. It was all right. my own thing. And I, I'd like to think I never judged anybody else who made that decision. Cause now, you know, there are a ton of people who have left theater and it turned out, you know, to maybe be lucky if they did it before COVID. Uh, and there are tons of people who stayed in it and who are thriving more than I ever had. And, and it's great. But, you know, it's all that personal decision. And of course, it doesn't matter as long as you're doing, you know, something fulfilling that is getting you where you need to be in your life. That's that's great. No, I never had any stigma or judgment around it. You know what I think is fascinating about that is, of course, I think that's the experience most people have when that when they encounter that. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about it is that we all hold ourselves to the standard of not quitting something as if. Like we treat our art or our, even our skill sets or whatever, almost like, like past significant others. It's like, oh, I can't believe you hey. broke up with it. You guys were so great together. And it's like, it's true. But, but when you break up with your girlfriend in high school, the odds of you getting back together with her ever in any capacity is like almost zero. And that's true. I think for everybody with relationships, like you break up, it's like, usually it's probably done. That's the point. It didn't work. Your relationship to your skill sets and your art is indefinite. It is forever. It is like, I know how to play whatever eight chords on the guitar I learned in high school. I still know how to do it. I never quit guitar, but I also never took it that seriously. You know, I tried to do stand-up comedy for a few years. I decided I didn't like the lifestyle of being a professional comedian. So I 
I, I didn't pursue it anymore, but I didn't like bail from comedy, man. Like I can do right. it again whenever the fuck I want. Same thing you with theater. You still tell jokes. You know what joke I, structure, you know how that works. I still have it all there. And the other thing that's most important that I even remind you, James, which I'm sure you know, you're a very smart uh, person. You can do it again whenever you want. One day you can just be like, and now I'm done with government. I think I'll try theater again now that I have right. a savings account. Like I left theater just like you, man, for the same reason. I left it very quickly and went into TV because I didn't grow up with any kind of fucking trust fund or safety net or anything. I did one play for free in New York and then immediately got a job at a TV, you know, uh, right. um, business uh, because that's what I needed. That's what I needed right. to do. And it was, it was interesting to me, but I've never told myself that I like abandoned theater, like a baby in the river and I'm never going right. to get to like do it again. I'm going to well, do I mean, it again. Right. And that's, there, there's also another stigma hidden in there, which is at least for me, these are all yeah. coming from my own mind. Course, I don't think anybody dude. else has ever made these stigmas. There's the no way you're alone. Of, there's no way the you're level alone. Of I theater promise. that you're doing yeah. Like, sure, I was on tour with big Broadway style productions. Sure, mm -hmm. I worked with Andy Blankenbuehler and, uh, you know, that's the, the big name connected to Hamilton that came to mind. But there's no reason I also can't go to a community or regional theater around here. If I miss working backstage, there's no right. reason I can't go to Arena Stage, Signature Theater, anything in the D.C. area and say, hey, I'm a stage manager. I have a nine to five job, but like, let's, you know, let me... Let me volunteer. Let me do some crew work. Let me do something else just to get backstage and get back into doing it. Because like you said, that was my first love. I can go back there. It doesn't have to be at a Broadway level again. There's no, and I think the stigma no reason is that, against it. My friend, the stigma is not you quit theater. You quit climbing. Yeah. That's the thing that we all think people are going to judge us for, that we judge ourselves for, that we carry shame about is like, at one point in my life, I was standing at the bottom of this mountain that was stage management or acting or comedy or whatever. And I went, I'm going to climb up that. And then at some point halfway, after I'd become a really fucking good climber because I got halfway up this mountain, let's keep that in mind. Right. I decided I just I don't care as much about the thing that's up there as I did four years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I started climbing this shit. And it's no longer interesting to me. And right. that's the thing that you're not allowed to do. You have to keep caring about it the way you did when you were 12 or you're a fucking right. quitter or a loser or whatever. <laughs> that, that's so stupid. That's right. like the dumbest thing. Like, that's the same thing of like, I can't believe you broke up with your high school girlfriend, man. Like, what are the odds you're going to be compatible with that person? Right. Like, unless you stay the same person from the time you're 12 or 15 or whenever you fell in love with your thing for the rest of your life. Don't be surprised if your opinions and passions and stuff change. Cause you change, you fell right. in love, man, that changed shit for you. That's yeah. not you. And you recognize now we both know, cause we're grown up enough to think about this. We're not 22, but it's like, that's not a failure. That's a no. success, a huge one. Right. And yeah. it's like way more valuable than the other thing you thought was valuable. Right. And that's so true. And, and I mean, those, you know, those mountaintops, uh, to use your analogy, they change too. Those industries change. There are, there are things that were so once, true, man. once achievable that just frankly don't exist anymore. 
right? They're not viable. They they don't exist like they once did, you know. And that's I think a lot of people do that when they're when they think of Broadway or Hollywood. They think of those industries of the fifties, of the sixties, of the golden even of the nineties, even of the nineties, and that yeah. those places don't exist anymore, right? Not yeah, really. you're not gonna get. Uh, I was I was listening to I think it was Rob Lowe talk about uh, something on a podcast about how when he was very young, like one of the first things he got, like before Outsiders, like before everything else, it was one of the earliest things he got was um, a pretty sizable role, recurring role on a TV show that was on like NBC or ABC or something. You know, one of the channels. Yeah, and he he was like we got canceled because we didn't have enough viewers and we only had, I can't remember. I'm going to pull the number out of my ass, but it was something like we only got 18 million. Only. So they canceled us because we couldn't keep up with cheers and mash and whatever the fuck was on that was getting like 70 million viewers or something. And so they're they're The, Fucking premiere of the last season of Game of Thrones is not getting above 12 million. Like the best, mm-hmm. biggest thing on TV now couldn't compete with the audience Rob Lowe right. had when he got canceled. To your point of that thing is different. And to not acknowledge that A, what's changing on the mountain and also how you feel about the mountain and everything and to not reassess constantly, that's the big tragedy. That's mm-hmm. the thing that maybe judge yourself a little bit on and just enough to get you back on track of asking questions of like, do I give a shit about this anymore? Right. Is this healthy for me? Is right. It, you've got to you know? you've got to keep your goals in check of that. Hey, is this goal still what I set out to find or is it different? Does it not exist anymore? Or have, like you said, have my opinions about it changed? Do I really want that still to blindly follow that goal just because you feel like you have to? or feel like quitting would be some sort of failure. That's the real mistake. Absolutely. How do you go from corporate to government? How does that shift? You I mean, I can DC. imagine. I can imagine the two living together. I, I, I voted for Bernie twice, so I get it. But like, how, do, how did you go from one to the other? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you live in DC because it, right. is, it is all around. It's always happening. Other, yeah. um, you can't do events in DC without eventually getting on a fundraiser or some sort of conference or something that is politically uh, charged. Of course, um, the biggest step there, which I totally lucked into, is getting some sort of secret clearance, uh, and because that is the big key that unlocks the door for the government. And once I was able to do mean, that, James, it it means that the government has decided you are trustworthy enough to know some secrets, uh, and getting that secret clearance of course there are different levels of it but getting at least at the base level you can start applying to jobs because it's Mm. one of those things where somebody has to sponsor you to get it because it costs a lot of money so some company has to sponsor you to get it but of course all of those companies want to hire somebody who already has it so they don't have to spend that money so it's really a lot of job hunting and knowing the right people in the area to get someone to sponsor you for it and then once you have it and your foot's in the door it opens up a lot more job opportunities where you can be hired. How much does it cost that company to sponsor you? I don't know a, a, an actual number, but we're talking mm. five or probably five digits, four or five digits. Goodness gracious. Yeah. It's, so I mean, it really is like any other business, right? Expensive. It's like there's so, not every other business, but there's so many businesses where there's this like 
very expensive barrier to entry, even if it's yeah, not a degree or a certificate. It's something, man. It's always something. It's always something. And this one has the unique difficulty of like, you can't, you can't get it through school or well, right. most of the time. I don't know if that's fully true, but you can't, you know, you can't go to a, a night school program to get a certificate to, right, to get right, it. Right. It really, for me, was knowing somebody because I didn't have poli-sci skills, because I wasn't from law school, because I wasn't what the government is normally looking for in somebody. I sort of had to look into it and know somebody who uh, was looking for that. You also it's have like to trying put to in get the work and grind it. Yeah. You know about that app, right? It's the dating app where it's like someone yeah, else I, who's a big deal has to tell them you're a big deal and you have to get three people or something. Yeah, I've I've heard of it. I think to my brother-in-law. Admittedly, I haven't been on a dating app in several years, but good, good boy. Uh, I have heard of that. Yes, wonderful. It is. It is. First of all, it sounds like the same people probably are on both those things. There is um, a huge crossover in the area. Yeah, I have no doubt in my mind. Um, so, how long then have you have you been a state boy? How long have you been doing the work for them? Have you been exclusively with the government for like a a while now? Uh, for a few years, yeah. So I was doing corporate events uh, 2018 up until 2021, so through the pandemic. So there was a big change in, of course, uh, corporate events. Once the pandemic hit, we couldn't do anything in person. Yeah. So, uh, you know, taking those skills and moving them virtual was a, a big thing. But once things started to recover, um, you know, and during the during the pandemic, I kept doing the grind of looking for these different jobs where my skill set would be valuable, but also, you know, I could get my foot in. Uh, and I happened to find it doing events. First, I worked for the Department of Defense. Um, I worked at the Pentagon uh, to not give a whole lot of details about it, but to say what I can. I was doing government events, essentially, when a foreign or domestic uh, delegation would come in to meet with higher ups. I would work out all the logistics, travel, security, parking, uh, food and refreshments. Once they came in, I'd work with all the different departments, um, different religious services if they needed that. Different Every aspect that came in uh, for these high level VIPs, I needed to think about my office needed to arrange and have set before they came in. So very much thinking about the experience that they were having. Uh, they were no mm. longer in a proscenium. Uh, this was much more interactive, much more like uh, Sleep No More in New York, where they were coming into our building. But I needed to make sure that their experience from the moment they set foot on the reservation, even in the parking lot, their experience was up to snuff with what they expected and fit protocol, which is the special government rules for how people should be treated uh, according to their rank or their importance, uh, their stature within in the government or their government. Um, so all of these different logistical hoops that I had to jump through, which I was an expert at because I was a stage manager. Right. Were you uh, at all like a, a government or politics nerd before you started working in DC? Were you like someone who followed elections and stuff like that? Other uh, than like the president or whatever, like were you, are you aware of the Department of Defense versus Justice versus whatever? Like, is that stuff that you really paid attention to growing up? Not at all. No, Got not it. at all. So I, you've been on I a was, crash course for a few years of learning the real absolutely. And outs. Got it. Absolutely. And working with the Department of Defense in particular is hard because it's military based. And right. I, while my dad was a veteran, it was way before my time. 
Uh, so I had to learn the alphabet soup of all the different acronyms yeah. that the military had. I had, I had, you know, cheat sheets printed on the side of my cubicle at the time of what the different ranks meant for each different branch of the military right. and who was above whom and how to address them. I had books of protocol all earmarked with different aspects of, you know, how do you address someone? How do you write to them in a formal setting? Where do they sit at a table uh, as, you know, it, in relation to someone else, the host versus the guest and the VIPs? There's a lot of that that I had to learn very quickly uh, that I didn't have to in theater because, you know, even even the director, we just say, hey, hey, Rob, how's it going? Yeah, have a seat. There's your water. Right. There, there might be coffee later. We'll let you know. Right. You might say, you know, Mr. Cruz uh, to your dressing room, please, or, or come on stage. But, you know, to right. to talk to General Millie uh, and know how to address him, you know, is a whole different thing. Do you have a lot of that or most of that decorum kind of memorized at this point? Or are you still a cheat sheet fella in some of those categories? Oh, I'm still definitely a cheat sheet fella, especially when it comes to identifying uh, the, the rank symbols and you know, different uniforms. Um, especially with so, foreign militaries. I mean, we have our own like five branches to cover and then you've got the, uh, who knows what the like, yeah, yeah, the Venezuelan ranking of the, man, that's gotta be no, those, tough. Yeah, those are all, those are on a case-by-case -case basis, you know. Right. As a, Learn it that morning. <laughs> right, as a good stage manager, I, I always carried my clipboard or my binder and that had a cheat sheet of, you know, faces to names, who's who, and how do you address them? Uh, the hardest one was so many princes and princesses coming over from Saudi Arabia. That was a big one because, uh, you know, you definitely have to address them properly. Um, I could never no, do I, it, man. I could never, ever do it. And I'm so glad this is like, hard. this is what I'm saying. No, this is why I love you, man. And I love people like you who are, who are, have this mentality about your work. And first of all, the focus to do it. When I quit Comedy Central, I had, when I worked there, I, I had taken the job of the guy they promoted. So like, basically he had this job, then they promoted him and they gave me his old job. And he sat right next to me and like, helped me learn his old job after a less than way less than a year. I already knew this is not the right job for me. And I hate to say it guys, but you need to hire another Alex. I was, I'm sure you were hoping you did, but you didn't, right. it needs to be that guy. And I have spent my whole, this really didn't happen until after I left NCSA and like went into my professional career, I regularly encounter things where I'm like, Oh no, it's not me. Another guy needs to do that. Like right. I could do it, but like, it would be great if James did it because he would like not be bothered by the shit that bothers me. He would miss, he wouldn't miss the stuff that I would miss and he would get it all right when I would fuck it up. Like I could do it, but you want James to do it. And when I hear you talk about that, I'm so glad that people like you are in those roles, man, even whether it's stage manager or especially in the government, because I could not be paid to care about how important someone is where they're from. Right. You couldn't. I can't pretend. I'm classically trained actor, man. I still couldn't pretend to give a fuck about princess, whoever the shit from wherever. It just doesn't matter to me because I'm very much on it. Like I was raised in Texas and we're all equals. Don't tell me what to do. Go fuck yourself. Like I got all of that too deeply into me. So the bowing and the excuse me with the, nah, I'm sorry. James is going to show you around. And if you need me, I'm Rob and I'll, you know, right. it's, 
it's great. It, it has, it says so much about your integrity, your humility, and your patience with just other human beings to say, I respect where you're coming from. I respect what you bring with you, whether that's my, whether I agree or not, whether I'm on board with your policies and none of that shit matters. My job is to make sure that there's no pork in the food or there's water at this location or there's, you know, that we follow the fucking rules, like all the stuff that you just said, the protocols, like that is what you are in service of. And man, I can't say it enough. I just, I, I think that's awesome. And I think it's great that people like you have those roles. People like you should be stage managers, first ADs, government event liaison, whatever your title is. Like it, it Spot is, on. was that right? It is yeah. like, it is imperative that people are able to put themselves aside for their work when their work doesn't require them in it. And I think people who study art struggle with that. I know I do. I can't take myself out of my work. So I need to do work that needs me to be me or it won't work. And, and you can just be, you, you could theoretically, I have no idea how you function at work. You could go home and be a completely different person than everyone realizes because James it, the job only needs so much James. It has all these right. things it needs you to do, but your opinion or your thing other than your skill set is not the thing they're paying you for. You get to do all that at home. Do you feel right. a difference? Like you have to put on work face? No, I, I never have. And I've You're I've a very always... authentic guy. That makes sense to me. Thank you. Yeah, I always try to be. I always try to be, you know, I'm an open book. There's nothing that I won't really talk about unless, you know, there are certain outside forces that stop me from talking about it. Um, I will always show you my... hits him in the neck. And... <laughs> right. Yeah, if there's a red dot that comes over my face, you know, I'll duck. Um, but no, I've never had to put on a work face. And I've That's it was cool, the same man. in theater, same in events, same in government. Um, and, it, you know, I'm very much the same way as you. As you. When I was in theater, when I was meeting, you know, a diva or someone who thought of themselves as a star, I couldn't give two shits. You're yeah. you're the same as me. We're all working on this project. We're all on a level playing field. Um, but when you move over into a little bit in corporate, because it's the mm-hmm. same way, but especially when you're I in that government. problem in corporate, yeah. Corporate's, corporate is hard because it is more of a gray area. But in the government, it... It, again, it's all in service of the project. It's no longer a show or a production. Here, you right. know, for government, it's a meeting. And those meetings of great minds, very powerful people can change a lot. Yeah. And so in service of the production, in service of the project, I have to uh, show that respect, show that protocol, right. whether it's someone I disagree with or not, because I've worked with people on both sides of the aisle from all over the world, of course. you sort of just have to put it behind you and say, hey, this is for the greater good of the project. We're going to get it done with. And then I can go home and think what, however I want to think, but we need to get this job done first. Um, aside from that, yeah, I, I've, I'm always the same person I am at work as I am at home. I love that, man. And I think it's important, you know, I can compartmentalize to a degree. You know, I have to say, working in reality TV, I've met a lot of people uh, on, on the right that I met in person and saw on TV for years and years and years and had my opinions about all the things they said, and they've been parodied on SNL and all this stuff. And then I finally met them in person. I was like, God damn, if I don't understand why you're a good politician, like, man, 
Dude, Sean Spicer is the nicest fucking dude. He's so cool. He's such a nice guy. And that like, doesn't actually surprise me. No, he's great. And he he was on Dancing with the Stars years ago. And we I he was on it for like a while. He was like the oh, dude yeah. who wasn't great, who couldn't get kicked off. And he was on, which is, oh, there's always at least one of those. And he was, I think he ended up getting like fifth or sixth, like, which is like halfway through the competition. It was crazy. And every week, you know, there's all sorts of different people who show up on those celebrity shows. And I think, I don't know if it was because he was in Hollywood and he knew he was kind of swimming with sharks as far as like who was probably on the crew or who was around him or whatever. But man, not everyone shows up to those TV shows, those celebrity TV shows like gung-ho let's make the show some of them are like i really need this check some of them are mm-hmm. like i don't want to do this they're late or they're they're putting on a face and that dude just seems so genuinely he seemed like a, a guy at your friend's uh kid's soccer game that's just sitting yeah. there next to you like the most down-to-earth dude sarah palin kind of had the same experience with her and i think that that is one of the things that it would be tough for me because my go-to instinct would be, especially with people who were like maybe foreign uh, from a country I've made up my mind about naively, you know, it that would be the hard thing to compartmentalize. But I know it would probably be like those experiences. And as soon as I spent time with them, if they're kind and honest and authentic people and be like, I don't love your laws, but man, right, I can shake your hand or whatever yeah. their thing is. Right, right. There's, there's, there's so much to unpack in everything you just said, Rob, and I love it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it it's sort of the same way with celebrities, right? From Hollywood yeah. too. Of they're just people. Right. Uh, there's a there's a much clearer distinction from Hollywood. What you are seeing on screen is a character, uh, and how you might know. I think the the example that comes to mind. I I unfortunately cannot remember the actor's name. Homelander from the boys. Of course, everyone hates Homelander. He's mm-hmm. very obviously the villain. He's a, a terrible person or super person, but the actor is a perfectly nice human right. being. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's definitely a character. And some people have trouble distinguishing those characters from Hollywood productions for their in person, you know, actor humans. Right. It, it happens the same way in politics. It's not right. a character per se, but it's definitely a caricature of who that human might be that, you know, you see on TV that you are shown that they put on that persona because they know that there are cameras in front of them. It, all in all, it's all just human people. And, you know, I'm careful to say that because there are a lot of politics now that do not take into account other human people and their Agreed. rights and how they should be treated. And, uh, there are a lot of those decisions being made that that matter a lot and affect people. But ultimately, someone like Sean Spicer, who uh, wasn't making those rules, of course, I'm sure he's a very nice human being. I'm sure a lot of uh, a lot of people are when they're not actively trying to take away rights and and liberties and things like that. Right. But yeah, we're it's, all we're all people. It's we can well, all get together. I, I think that's the thing too, right? That we have to remind ourselves of, and it's tough because you don't want to. I don't want to mitigate when people do things that are not good. And I don't want to pretend like they don't happen. Right. But I think there was a time, I think it was Newt Gingrich in the nineties who like kind of famously was leading the, he was the leader of the house of representatives after Clinton got reelected and he's Republican. He's running the house. And for the first time, kind of in us history for like, since the civil war, 
he really turned the culture, as I understand it, of telling, look, A, don't hang out with them. Don't go across the aisle. Don't go to the front. Don't go to the baby shower. Don't get beers. We're on this. We have to stick together. And they are the people in the way of what we're trying to accomplish. So keep right. that in mind. And that's not how it was. And people forget that in the era no. of, that we're living in now. There was a time, whether you like it or not, and yes, they were mostly all white men. That is true. But they went to work in Congress, in the government, on both sides. And mm-hmm. at five o'clock or whatever it was, they were people. And they treated right. each other with respect and dignity and understood that, look, we may not agree, but we both have to go home and feed our kids and all this kind of stuff. Right. That really used to be a lot more prevalent in our government and less adversarial. And I think that that is the thing that I'm always trying to find. I don't want to you know, fail to condemn abhorrent behavior. I don't want to uh, push uh, people up when they uh, don't deserve it. But at the same time, we all got no, the people who disagree with us aren't going to self deport, man. They're not going anywhere. We got to figure out a way to all be here. And I think that, you know, as much as we can do that, I think that we're going to win. And I, I, the reason I bring all this up in this conversation with you is it sounds like you're one of the people who's doing that work. You know, you're one of those people who, uh, it's not about what you've feel and think you have a job your job is right. to do that thing and those and people that th- who they are doesn't need to impact that for you right uh, who they are doesn't doesn't impact my job it doesn't impact what i'm doing and very much like what i was doing in theater when i was enabling performances i was enabling people to use their talents it's the same thing i'm doing here right. i am enabling through through my particular talents i'm enabling those meetings to happen those people to come together, those policies to be made that have a whole greater impact uh, on the world than what I could ever do. Uh, You know, I'm just, again, I'm still a professional enabler. (laughs) I like that. Uh, There's a book that I will recommend to anybody listening who reads books uh, in the context of all this stuff that we've just talked about that I really liked. Ronan Farrow put out a book a few years ago. I think it was after his, I think it was before his Me Too thing. So, uh, but it was War on Peace. Um, and it is a great book about the end of diplomacy in America. Uh, it's just mm. about how we really, really used to lean more on diplomats. Um, oh, yeah. And they were uh, apolitical people who really learned the culture and the communication of specific other places than America and kept us out of war, kept us out of conflict. You know, they would have fucking tea with somebody and we wouldn't kill a bunch of people. Like it was, it sounds wild, but it's like, it really so much of, so much of like American history really rested on the, the unsung people, man, the, the thankless work. There was, there was this great uh, New Yorker comic that hung up in the office where I worked, where I was doing um, event planning for the policy department. Uh, and it was of the National Defense Policy Board, you know, a big board of people who talks about how are we going to defend ourselves and more importantly, how are we going to have those diplomatic relationships? And I think it was the chairperson of the board. And he said, ah, my pork cutlet is cold. Bomb Iraq. And, you know, very much a caricature, but 
right. very close to what reality could be. If if something about that experience is wrong and puts somebody in the wrong mood, who knows what could happen? And of course, thankfully, nothing that bad. But uh, it's a reminder that that the things that we do matter. You'd be a hell of a diplomat, man. I gotta say it. I really think so. I would. I would send you to chat someone down. Don't send me because if they don't get my jokes, it's not gonna work. Oh no, I'm I'm the same way. Thankfully, thankfully, like I've always realized, that is not where I where my talents <laughs> lie. But I'm happy to enable right. and make the situation right for somebody who can do that. James, thanks for taking the time to talk to me, man. This was super fun. Rob, it was great catching up. Thank you. Any uh, parting thoughts, final words? Uh, you know, I, I'd love to think that there are people out there who might still be at UNCSA who's checking it out. I always want to tell them uh, that theater is not your only option, that there are so many things out there that you can do with your skills as an artist, as a manager. Uh, broaden your horizons. Don't blindly follow the goal just because you feel like you have to and you should uh, and always be looking inside to figure out what you actually want. Great words. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Rob.